Hello, uh, I'm Adam, Hello. and welcome to the Minefield podcast. As you can see, I'm kind of flying solo this week. Um, Warren will be back with us next week. Um, but yeah, I'm on my own this week with our very special guest, uh, Patrick Doyle. Uh, Patrick is a, a clinical psychotherapist, um, and he's here to talk about... Now, I need to put this on the on, on the screen because uh, I do tend to mix up um, my words when I'm saying this, Patrick. So, mm. Patrick is talking to us about the world according to you, an exploration of the nature of reality and our mental health. Now, this, this sounds really fascinating, Patrick. So... Before we get into it, do you want to just tell us a little bit about you and your background? Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, so I'm a, a consultant psychotherapist. Sorry to correct you there. <laughs> Similar. Uh, yeah, I've been working in mental health for over 20 years. Uh, started out in uh, psychiatric secure services, working with uh, mentally disordered offenders people had committed quite serious crimes and uh, obviously have uh, mental health difficulties. So with sections, uh, more recently in the last 10 to 15 years, started up my own clinic and practice uh, um, based on sort of individual therapy and uh, did, did, did lots of training as well in mental health and worked with lots of different organisations in a consultative sort of role. In a nutshell, if that, if that uh, captures everything yeah i mean you've you've got a lot of experience within mental health haven't you and you've worked in a lot of different different settings um, yeah absolutely yeah so yeah just do you want to kind of kick off and, and start explaining um the theme that you've kind of brought to us absolutely yeah so this this theme you know who how we look at the world how we Going to use a word now. Uh, I want to replace uh, a word that most people uh, sort of use in this capacity. When, when we when we see the world, when we look at the world, we say that we perceive the world. That's correct. I'm not taking issue with that. But we perceive the world first, then we conceive of it. And these two things happen almost simultaneously in our brain through some very complex. Uh, um, neurological gubbins, <laughs> which we might sort of touch on um but what happens is we perceive the world first through our senses and then we conceive of it we extract meaning so i'll, I'll demonstrate this now i'm just going to take a sip of water just using adam as a, as a guinea pig if i said to you adam what's this i have in my hand what would you say without wishing to sound patronizing a glass of water Brilliant. So just ignore the water for a second. I just want to focus on this, the object that's that's surrounding it. So if I said to you, Adam, glass isn't real, what would you say? Yeah, they are. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> one more step. So just focusing on this object. Uh, I'm not for a second going to try and convince you that there isn't an object. I can feel it. I've just picked it up off the desk here. Uh, you can see it, I, I can see it, and obviously if I make a sort of tapping sound. So there is an object there, but what I'm suggesting and, and what I'm kind of wanting everyone to sort of think about is that two separate things are happening all at once. There is an object in my hand that I can feel, uh, touch, etc. 
but it's the thing that we call it, the idea that we use to identify it that isn't real. So glass isn't real, therefore, is it? I think you'd agree. The object is real. It is a, a manufactured object made out of various um, materials that are melted and poured into a mould. And that's what we, the word glass, which is a signifier, uh, signifies the object that I'm holding. So there is two separate things. There is the object itself, uh, which is the thing I perceive and how I conceive of it, the language and idea that I use to identify it. That's the bit that we want to play with. And that's the bit that trips us up a lot. Mm. So I just want to use it again, using you, Adam, as a sort of a litmus here. Does that, does that make sense? Okay, good. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Great. So, um, very, I'm taking a little journey now, I'll tell you a little story about a French philosopher who's become very important in scientific thinking recently, uh, who first identified this conundrum. A chap called Maurice Merleau Ponty, who was a, this is a bit of a mouthful, a French uh, phenomenologic uh, existentialist, uh, which is a, a type of uh, philosophy, existentialism. And Maurice, we'll call him for, for purposes of the story. He in 19 sort of late 45, I think it was, he was writing a book called The Phenomenology of Perception. And he was sat in his garden in his French villa at the south of France. And he noticed that his swimming pool was going green. So he went down to the bottom of the, the garden in his villa and discovered that the pump, the filtration pump that obviously kept everything clean and, and kept the water flowing, had clogged up and stopped working. And obviously that was the cause of, of, the, of his swimming pool going green. So the next day he arranged for some local workmen to, um, to come and drain the pool and begin fixing this pump and replacing parts. And he was sat again by the, the pool and he was quite sort of struck by the, the difference in what he saw from the previous day. The previous day, the pool had been full of water, slightly green, obviously, um, but the water had been sort of gently rippling by with the, the breeze. And obviously the bottom of the pool was, was being re refracted with the light, so it was constantly moving. But now there was no water in, in the in the pool so he could actually see the bottom of the pool as it actually exists and he started to think about this is how we see the world if he sort of made the um, contrast between the world being the pool and our minds and how we see it and how we distort it being the water in the pool and he was quite struck with that uh, and began to sort of untangle this idea of we we the world he said the world is already always there as a reality and how we perceive the world through our senses is the closest we'll ever come to sort of actually experiencing the world as it truly is because there's layers of thought and meaning and concepts and uh, extrapolation and assumption that we put on top of it based on everything that we experience so again using you adam how old are you just remind me 40, 40, Patrick, yeah. Well, you've, you've had 40 years' experience of being Adam, and that 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 perspective on life is totally unique. Everything that you've ever experienced shapes that reality. Obviously, I'm slightly older than you. I'm 55. 
so, but we share lots of common sort of things. You know, we, we live in the northwest of England. We have a certain outlook because of that, because of the schools that we went to. So there are some similarities, but there are more differences. And the way that our mind works is that we look at the world and we, be, we want to look for evidence that confirms our idea of it. And this is called the confirmation bias. And it's the biggest part of the conceptual part of our mind that trips us up. So if you have a, a certain viewpoint about Blackburn Rovers being a fantastic team, you know, you're going to look want to see evidence that they are. And when they win, brilliant, fantastic. They've won, won a fantastic team. And didn't that remind us when they, they won the, champ the the premiership back in the 90s, etc. But when they lose, you know. So all the time, our mind is looking for evidence that the world is as we see it. But what's really important about that is that we begin to discard evidence that actually might, if we examine it, might help us understand the world more accurately. So two things are really important there. We're looking for evidence that confirms our, our beliefs, our ideas about the world, and we overlook, we discount the um, anything else that doesn't, doesn't sort of match up with that. And what we need to do in mental health, if, if, we're, if, we're, if this causes us problems, is stop this narrowing of our view and open it up. So we, we become like detectives in our own life. We're not looking for murders, obviously, but we're, we're trying to understand what's happening to us, how our, how our part, uh, how we play a part in that, how we take control. So if, you, if you've ever walked past a crime scene or you've seen a crime scene on television, um, you'll, you'll notice the, 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 the tape, the cordon, and to the general public, that says, all right, you can't go in there because this is an active crime scene. But what it says to the police and the detectives and everyone, everyone involved in, in the uh, investigation is that everything within this cordon is potential evidence. And it's helpful to try and sort of have the same viewpoint in your life. Look at your life as a crime scene and try, if, if, if possible, to consider everything before we act or react. And then we begin to see that actually, if we, we examine more uh, outcomes and consequences, we begin to see that we can become less reactive and more proactive, if that makes sense. Do you think that changes as we get older, Patrick? Do you think oh, we become more considered? Yeah, I think most people can say that, you know, they learn things as they go along. Sometimes we don't, we get stuck in our ways. We, we have uh, habits, ways of reacting that despite our age, despite the way that we, they, this hasn't worked for us in the past, we still want to do that. You know, drinking addiction is a, is a good example of that. You know, at the end of a day, you might think, oh, well, tough day, I can murder a pint. That's fine, you know, having a couple of pints in the evening. But if you've had a really crappy day and you want more pints, that's going to have a knock-on effect. And if that becomes habitual, it then becomes problematic because obviously it, there's more uh, there's more cost and benefit. So how do we, you know, for people that are watching and they're thinking, yeah, this sounds really, really good, but, you know, I can't. I, I struggle to pick apart um, my own crime scene. I, I struggle to pick apart what is evidence and what's not. And 
I don't know how yeah. to examine it. How do okay. we do that? So two two things. First of all, it's important to understand uh, slightly more the mechanics of that, and that involves the limbic system, which I'll sort of take you through in a minute. And then once we're aware of how that pattern begins to repeat itself, that informs us, that, in, that tells us how we can stop habitual behaviours, how we can stop thinking habitually, how we can stop behaving habitually and move away from things that cause us harm to move towards things that are more helpful. So if you think about three circles in space in a line, one, two, three, the first circle is a very simplified sort of conceptualization of the limbic system is the amygdala. So the amygdala is where many of our emotion, emotions live. It's like our early warning system. And it's where the flight or fight system lives. So if anyone's read the chimp paradox, you'll be very familiar with the amygdala, uh, etc. So there's actually three states to the fight or flight system. There's fight, freeze, and flight. So obviously it's anxiety and the amygdala therefore is like an early warning system it's, it's operational all the time so we are actually anxious all of the time it's just about the severity or degree of that and obviously if you've lived quite a traumatic life you you become hyper vigilant yeah. when any of those three states are activated uh, a signal is sent to the hypothalamus it's the hypothalamus's job to control uh, all the what they call autonomic functions of the body or it's like a little smart control so right now we don't have to think about breathing unless we take conscious control of our breathing i don't have to think about my heart continuing to breathe making sure i'm alive i don't have to think about the food being digested in my stomach i don't have to think about my heart rate beating at a certain rate to make sure the blood supply is constant the hypothalamus takes care of that automatically but when the fight or flight mechanism is activated, it then gets the body ready to do one of these three things, to confront something, to run away or panic, I don't know what to do. And those um, experiences or symptoms we have of, of breathlessness, heart pounding, butterflies, that's the, that's the hypothalamus getting the body ready to fight or flight yeah. principally. What then happens is, the hippocampus remembers this the hippocampus is, is part of the memory and learning system and it's a very very small part of the brain but it's an extremely important part of the brain because it forms habit and learning so if we do something in response to a stimulus uh, that's detected in in the environment something that we need to confront or run away from it's the hippocampus that remembers this so the next time it happens it wants us to do the same thing. Now, what we have to do is think, is this helpful? Mm. Me going to the pub again tonight and, and downing six pints of beer because I've had a really crap day again, uh, is this going to work? So I was really hungover this morning and I'm starting to understand and realise that actually alcohol is a central nervous depressant. So why am I so surprised that I'm depressed? <laughs> I know, why don't I stop drinking and why don't I go for a walk instead? So you're moving away from unhelpful behaviours or maladaptive behaviours that are habitual towards something that is more helpful and adaptive that actually improves our mental health, not sort of help, helps it deteriorate, if that makes sense. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Um, 
we've got some comments here as well. Um, oh, yeah. that are, so I'll just I'll just flash these up for you. Literally, flashbang theory. People usually get things wrong when they uh, when they relay the information as they've had time to be externally influenced. That's, yeah, that's what you were saying. Yeah, so it's really helpful to think about um, three types of evidence, if you will. There are facts, which usually have uh, to do with cause and effect. For example, if I drop this form, it's going to sort of uh, go downwards because of, of, uh, of um, gravity. If I do it 100 times, the same thing will always happen. So that's indisputable, it's provable, it's demonstrable. The next set is opinions. Opinions are short-term uh, sort of perspectives on things that might change. For example, we've all been through a torrid time with um, COVID and the government have perhaps in some people's eyes hasn't uh, responded altogether uh, ethically all the time. So some people have a pers perspective on that. Uh, and then there are beliefs, which are longer term perspectives that are influenced by our upbringing, our culture and our parents, etc. And it's useful to think about what is influencing my decision. Is it factual or is it an assumption that is based on a, a perception, uh, sorry, a, a, an opinion or a belief? So slowing that process down, as, as the person that's commented is suggesting, rather than going flashbang, here we go, this is what I've done because I've always done it, or hang on a minute, what's the, what's the most uh, feasible, helpful thing to do here? So slowing that process down of reaction and being more proactive is, is helpful. Yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously what you're saying is, is resounding with people. Um, as oh, you good. can see there. Um, holy, I, would, I, I know what that says, but uh, that hippocampus bit really, really makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, it's really kind of resounding with, with a lot of people, that Patrick, because... We we are um, routinal, aren't we? We fall back on our our known behaviours, and, and we kind of go to what's comfortable rather than what's healthy and helpful to our to our kind of mental health. Absolutely, absolutely. Or even what's uncomfortable, we still end up doing it because of this habitual sort of pattern that's been laid down. And the hippocampus is really important in terms of trauma, because in a sense the traumatic events continue to wash around in the hippocampus uh, and so every time that same stimuli comes up it, we get that trigger of remembering oh my god this is like when x y and z happened and the point of therapy with traumatic events and people who are suffering because of that is about helping that memory become what's called time stamped in a different part of the brain called the post so that if the trigger comes up, the same kind of stimuli comes up in the environment, the person can say, oh, no, hang on a minute, that was happening way back when. It's not happening now. They can learn that it's not happening now. Although before they've learned, before they can resolve that, it feels like it's actually happening now again, and it's being repeated. That's really important because a lot of people will perhaps uh, key into the fact that trauma is very much... Um, a tr continuing trigger for mental health difficulties. Yeah, yeah, and that's um, Andy's just uh, commented there that in nine one one the same um, sorry nine eleven the same people were interviewed a few days after the event and the basic things were changed. For example, a red car to a blue car. 
So that's the same thing, isn't it? Where we were talking about the timestamp and the change Absolutely. of information. Absolutely, yeah. Each time we recollect something in our brain and then um, conceptualize it, and, and so we remember it, we, we there is a narrative there, oh, that happened. It gets changed slightly. So over time, things, uh, our memory gets distorted. Uh, and there's a common experience, I don't know if you've ever been, and for people listening, you've, you've gone back to the house you used to live in or you've gone back to the school that you used to, to go to, and everything is very small. You remember it as a bigger because you were a smaller person, when in actual reality, it's much bigger. So what your brain has to do then is accommodate that, and then we then lay down a new memory of, oh, it's not as big as I thought it was. And then obviously we might tell someone of this. And so in the brain, the brain starts to remember that, oh, it wasn't as small, uh, as big sorry it was you know there's, there's some change in space and that can be difficult that's a very overt example there are the more sort of subtle examples that, that to put there yeah, that's, that's spot on how i mean you're talking about changing kind of your your behavior and your, and your core kind of um mm -hmm. functions how how you know how can that be done in um what kind of time frame does it take for people to change those patterns and, and, and learn new kind of processes? The key factor uh, is motivation, you know, and the um, progress in therapy and that the time span of, of, of progress is largely dependent on how motivated someone in, is to, to change. Uh, people might be familiar with Prochaska and De Clemente's motivation. Uh, motivation to change model and, and which they outline four states uh, so not willing to change not motivated considering change not fully committed the third state is where we need to be is you know fully committed fully aware of consequences uh, and, 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 and seeking change and obviously the, the fourth part of the, the cycle is is relapse where motivation declines so if a client or a person looking at their own mental health obviously needs someone to help them uh, sort of uh, implement that change or they can do it on their own. So obviously there are lots of self-help videos on YouTube or you go and see someone like me and you, you, you kind of, I always say that a good therapist is like a good plumber. If, if your um, boiler breaks down and you ring some guy and he turns up with a screwdriver in his back pocket, you're not going to be too impressed that he's going to fix your boiler and you might sort no. of have a sneaky suspicion that he's going to rip you off. But if a guy turns up in nice clean overalls, all the right qualifications and stickers on his family, all the registrations, and he's got, importantly, a really big toolbox, you know that he's probably, uh, A, going to fix your boiler because B, he knows what he's doing. Now, that's where the analogy stops. As a therapist, I can't fix someone. I can teach someone and enable someone and motivate someone and give them the tools to fix themselves. And this, this theory that we've explored today is a, a foundational bedrock for, for understanding where we then sort of think about, okay, you know how this thing in the mind is working now and compelling you to do this thing that you ultimately realize isn't helping. But here's how we relearn to try something else that is more adaptive more helpful yeah brilliant um 
And just a question from um, Sasha there. In relation to what you were saying, as a holistic therapist, when not performing, people have to want to change in order to feel growth. Yeah, so it's we're back to motivation, aren't we? It's, um, if you know, if you don't, you only. I think the easiest way to say it is you only get out what you put in. You know, mm -hmm. and for a lot of mental health difficulties, it's about committing one hundred percent. And what I tend to do in, in, in assessing clients when they when they refer themselves or refer to me, one of the key things I have to assess is motivation. And if the motivation isn't sort of at a, at sort of a level that would mean change, that's what we have to work on first. So it's about perspective taking, about consequential thinking. Okay, well, if you continue to do this, you know, why are you so surprised that you're not able to get up for work and that your boss is dragging you in and you're, you're being sort of suspended and you're losing your temper all the time? You know, if you continue to drink, that's probably what's continued to happen. So let's think about trying something different. Yeah, and motivation probably is different for everybody, isn't it? And, you know, because of the way that we kind of hardwired, mm. um, but it also depends on our environment, I'd, I'd say, and our circumstances at the time, you know, because yeah. some days you can get up and you feel motivated, but then mm. when you feel less motivated and there's external pressures that's when you kind of quite easily fall back and slip into absolutely absolutely so that's where we have to investigate scientifically using the same sort of principles what it is we're doing that's not helping and promote more things that we do we, we can do that are helping so it's it's about this giving yourself a chance keeping yourself safe uh, looking after yourself uh the England cricket team have got this uh, wonderful uh, phrase now, haven't they? They've been, they've been using for a while. Back yourself, you know. Believe in yourself, you know. Uh, know that the world uh, isn't meant to be easy. It always throws you like curveballs. So stop trying to make it that way. Yeah. Except that something will happen that will f our day up today, and I have to deal with it. If I don't, if I run away from it. And I go to the pub, for, for example, you're sticking with that same uh, coping strategy. Strategy. Uh, the day that ensues is probably going to be the same as the previous one. So I've got to think about changing here. I've got to do something different. I've got to look after myself. I've got to take care of myself. So I think previous speakers and previous podcasts have focused on different ways of doing that. So it's about having your own tool bag of self-care, your own tool bag of, 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 of belief, you know. One of the key um, uh, exercises I give my clients initially is called the 100 strengths exercise. Get my clients to write down 100 of their strengths. Most people listening would go, what? I don't think I've got 10. Yes, you have. The harder you look, the more you will find. Because you know, the more you accumulate sort of experience, the more you accumulate skills, knowledge, understanding. And experiences in of, of themselves are always a sort of mine, a, a, a gold mine of, 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 of learning. You know, it's about this bad thing's happened to me. What can I learn from it? How can I do something differently next time around? Having that inquiring, curious mind to think about that rather than, oh my God, which we all do. Don't worry. I was, you know, I was doing that earlier <laughs> because the technology wasn't working. 
but it's about sort of turning that around to your to your benefit. Have I lost you, Adam? I think brilliant. Are you still with us, yeah. Patrick? You still there? Oh yeah, sorry, yeah, it, 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 yeah, yeah. You still there? Yeah. I think we're having some technology. Still problems. here? Okay. Um, I think yeah. that's been absolutely amazing, Patrick. Yeah. Um, if anybody's got any questions or um, wants to talk to Patrick um, about anything else, you know, he is. He is absolutely amazing at what he does and, you know, very, very intelligent and, and very kind of knowledgeable about mental health. So I just want to thank thank Patrick for, for coming on and, and talking to us in the brief time that we've had. Um, next week, we'll be joined by Charlie Bethel, who's the um, CEO of the charity Men Sheds UK. So he's going to be talking about men's, men's sheds and what men in sheds is and what it does and about how that's grown and developed. But yet, if anybody would like um, any more information from Patrick, um, I can very easily um, put you in touch with Patrick. Um, it's quite handy that we are um, brothers as well, so um, <laughs> very, very uh, handy connection to have. Thank you all for watching, and yes, we'll, we'll see you on the next podcast. The mind. The Mindfield podcast has been presented by the Sanguine Writing House, the UK's leading provider of online mystery and strategy games, along with team training, mental health awareness and mental health first aid courses. To find out more and to book your course or game, please visit tswh.co.uk.